Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. If there's any place of strength to work from and that you can galvanize the folks who are trying to make places better and trying to you know, both democratize wealth creation as well and not concentrated. You know, maybe all of those are part of the ecosystem. And, you know, part of our work as developers and as economic developers is to catalyze, get them resources, connect the dots, make sure people know each other and that, you know, good work gets the support it needs. Welcome to Moving the Needle a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about addressing long-standing economic inequities. As we talk about the racial wealth gap, it's critical to highlight the importance of owning assets. At the end of 2020, for example, 44% of Black Americans owned their homes, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, compared with almost 75% of white Americans. That's an unconscionable difference. One of the ways to build generational wealth is through owning assets like land, a home, or even retail property. And today we're talking to someone who's creating new ownership opportunities within majority communities of color. That man is Lanier Richardson, co-founder and CEO of Chicago Trend, which catalyzes, accelerates, and finances strategic retail development to drive neighborhood transformation. Lanier started his career as a bank lawyer And even though he was working on deals in the nine figures, he was bored and wanted to do something different. It wasn't until I got a chance to do a pro bono assignment, which was the bank was making a $100,000 loan to a barber who was buying his building on the west side of Chicago, you know, a mile or two away from where I grew up, that the work had meaning. It was the same promissory note loan documents. It was a $100,000 loan as opposed to a $100 million loan, but the work had meaning. Getting resources to people and places that other people overlook or undervalue, that's what's passion. So ever since that day, 
you know, almost 27 years later now, uh, I'm still chasing that feeling. Now he chases that feeling every day at Chicago Trend, where he helps underrepresented entrepreneurs build wealth in their own communities. Because he knows for a black founder, it's not easy raising money. I always remember when I first started as an entrepreneur, someone telling me, you got to go around to the friends and family round. You got to do your friends and family round. You know, every entrepreneur has to do a friends and family round. So I went around to my friends and my family and I got a round of applause. It wasn't <laughs> they couldn't support go me. Go get them, Tiger. <laughs> yeah, they wasn't they couldn't support me. It was just, you know, it was like, well, yeah, man, you know, we still got student loan debt. My, you know, my aunts, well, they were not going to take $20,000 out of their, you know, retirement savings at that point. So I, you know, there was no discretionary, not as if people didn't have, there was no real, real risk capital, right? And so that closing that gap, figuring out how to get patient capital and early capital to entrepreneurs that, you know, I actually got one of my uncles to invest in my first business. Thanksgiving dinners were, you know, uncomfortable for about three years until I repaid them, mm. right? So, you know, that stuff, you know, is all of that sort of baked into this work of not only training and education and capacity building, but putting some money alongside of it as well, patient, flexible capital too. Well, I love about, you know, that that work is being able to have had that journey already and then be able to come in with a sense of empathy, connection, relationships, figuring out a way you can pay it forward. And I know that, you know, through the work you've done at Rutgers, you all have been able to support, you know, 400 plus entrepreneurs and innovators that are driving this kind of work forward. But I want to build on what Jonathan was saying earlier, but about that you were a builder, I mean, through and through, and we're going to get to the real estate uh, elements of this here shortly, but I want to back up just a little bit where you talked about, you know, hey, that $100,000 loan to the barber light bulb, I'm, I, I want to do more around the world of impact, especially into communities that are often overlooked. Talk to us a little bit about that, that process, that transition. Where did you decide to ch you know, channel your energies? Because it's one thing to have the revelation. The other is to actually translate that into a high-impact idea and enterprise that, that is going to actually create that type of sustained impact. Yeah. After leaving the bank, I joined an actual home builder in Chicago who was developing houses in Chicago and worked there for a couple of years. But many people may not remember, it's been so long ago, I was named Young Entrepreneur of the Year uh, by the SBA. And I started a company in the first year I built four single family homes, then 20, then 60, and we got to about 100 homes a year. It's, uh, it's tough even to talk about this today because I had all the highs and lows of an entrepreneur. I built a team from, you know, two men in a one man office to 26 people. I bought land and, you know, got awards and appointed to, you know, important boards and commission by the mayor and by the governor. And then I wiped out a hundred percent wipeout. Right. It took me 10 years to be able to talk about it this transparently. And, you know, 10 years and hours of therapy, right, to talk about it. But, you know, that failure and those lessons of, you know, running out of cash and keeping my reputation and figuring out how to rebuild, you know, sort of my story, uh, all are baked into the work that I do today, right? So that entrepreneurship 
made me a better employee. I took a job subsequent to that period, seven year period, uh, has made me a better employee. And it's also uh, has made me a better second time entrepreneur, right? I mean, literally, I didn't believe, and the reason why talking about that period is still so almost emotional for me is I didn't believe that you get a second chance, that I didn't believe, you know, you learn from failure and failure is part of the entrepreneurship story because I had this orientation that black entrepreneurs didn't get the second chance, right? You know, you, you credit is messed up and people wonder what happened to them. So the fact of just getting up every day, rebuilding my own story, using the, you know, entrepreneurship lessons and the community building lessons that were a part of that experience, all are part of the work that I do today. Lanier, let's again connect that thread. At bats, second chances. Let's build on that a bit. Minority entrepreneurs seem not to enjoy the same risk tolerance from the stewards of our economy, investors, financiers as well. How are we increasing the risk tolerance so the profile of risk for minority entrepreneurs, underestimated entrepreneurs, is similar to that of anyone else? So some of this is, you know, self-reflection, uh, right? Um, you know, my parents raised us like so many others. You got to be excellent. You got to work harder than everybody else. And so the failure part, I'd never failed, right? I was, you know, student body president in seventh grade if my, if my buddies were here. And I always, you know, worked to, ex, you know, excel, right? What I've found is after having the, you know, the business failure, is that when I started to talk to investors and embraced it and made it part of the learning and my stories that people said, hey, I want a guy who has battle scars and war wounds and war stories, right? And has overcome and has come back and, you know, managed cash flow, you know, who's made payroll. I always say that, you know, people say, you're not an entrepreneur until you made payroll. I always retort that you're not an entrepreneur until you miss payroll. payroll. <laughs> and you still have to get people to come in and work and help execute the vision, right? So part of that message to other entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs of color, is every lesson can be woven into the next part of growth. There's some lessons failures teach. There's a way to, to tell the story. To be This is a journey, a multi-year, multi-phase journey that we have to understand. I think on the impact investor side, it's finding ways to build a connection. Whenever I built a connection with the funder, whether it's I met them at a conference or find out a way to have a lunch or they wrote, you know, I wrote something and they responded. You know, it, we make the human connection and so much about the work we do in community development, entrepreneurship comes back to a human connection and it cannot be underestimated. You still have to be excellent. The numbers have to work. It has to fit their strategic priorities. But making a human connection, um, you know, cannot be underestimated. You know, it's, it seems like so much about this is also perception, you know, that uh, it's the perception that one has of oneself and the resilience that one can have as an entrepreneur who is battle tested and has taken a few swings at bat and swung out, you know, swung and missed a few times and the perception of investors and others that are willing to give another shot at bat. That's right. You know, I think it's a, it's a dual it's a dual perception. The other quick thing on that is that 
uh, a colleague of mine at Duke, uh, Sim Sitkin, talks about failure in two dimensions. One is that one can fail because one has not tried hard enough. And other times where you have tried really hard and the fundamentals have broken down and it's this, the latter that you learn from, right? And so it, there are different degrees of, of failure, but I know that, uh, you know, through our friendship and relationships that it's like, you know, taking hard swings at bat and all the lessons that come from that, that then can translate. So let's talk then about taking that oh, second hold, hold shot. On a yeah, second, go for it, Jonathan. Uh, Christopher or Joe Perry from Aerosmith and Dream On, you got to lose to know how to win. That's pretty straightforward. That's right. Yeah, there you go. All right. I'm glad you dropped a little Aerosmith reference Absolutely. I'm I'm versatile. (laughs) Look, if you want song lyrics, man, I got blues lyrics. All right, now. Come on, keep it coming. Keep it coming. (laughs) So I'm sure I can build on that metaphor somewhere. But as as we think about returning back to the dream, you know, uh, uh, coming through that process, you're you're an employee, but you're, you know, cogitating, thinking about how do I get back in the game? Where are there gaps? Where are there opportunities to really be able to make a difference? What was that next swing? What was that next at bat look like for you? And and how did you step up to the plate? So I I went and worked for a large corporation, and I met the CEO of General Growth Properties at an industry event, you know, Urban Land Institute conference. And they had a personal interest, the family had a personal interest in urban development. And so why I had been, my experience at, to that point had been residential development in communities. Whenever I was building houses, people would always say, well, you know, where do we go for a grocery store? Where's a sit down restaurant? Where's a coffee shop? And for me to go to, you know, at that time, the second largest owner, developer and manager of, of, of shopping centers in the country and have really a national you know, footprint and they have the resources of a big company. They have market research and legal. And it was, uh, it was just refreshing. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a godsend, right? Uh, a CEO who was supportive. A, you know, I got to develop the business plan and do work in Baltimore and Birmingham, Alabama and Harlem and Detroit, uh, Chicago. That was, you know, and so that was the next step, right? It was, you know, going to, uh, you know, and working with the team on this work and making the case. And what I really learned in my years at General Growth uh, is, you know, this work is evolutionary, not revolutionary. You keep chipping away at it. That, you know, again, the importance of relationships and retail development, uh, but also this thought of, you know, sort of how wealth is created by owning assets, assets that appreciate over time, you know, assets that have tax advantages, and it was the first time where I got this exposure to the fact that people of color didn't really own commercial property, that so much of the wealth creation argument, rightfully so perhaps, has been focused on, you know, home ownership, you know, and every, you know, that as a getting the home ownership rate around among people of color above 60% or, you know, in that range. But nobody ever really talked about owning assets that appreciate and generate revenue, businesses, stock commercial real estate, which is then became something that I started to think about more and more, you know, over time. General growth then, just, just following up, general growth then in the financial recession experienced, you know, all of us in development got laid off. And I got this cool opportunity to move to Newark, New Jersey and work for Cory Booker when he was mayor. I headed the Economic Development Corporation in Newark for 
then Mayor Booker, now Senator Booker, and, and subsequently for uh, Mayor Baraka. And that work was illuminating because it was seeing community development from the city's perspective, not just as the developer asking for entitlement, asking for incentives. It was now I get this, you know, I had another seat at the table to see, well, how does the city think about this strategically? What resources are really available? And how does a developer make a case or, or entrepreneur make a case for public-private partnership? So it's, you know, again, that career progression, you could have never told me I would have went from law to entrepreneurship to big corporate to government and then the academia. Jonathan, you've heard me tell people this before that when I finished law school, I promised the Lord that I was never going back on any campus again if he just let me pass the bar exam. Right. And so I had to just I had to sort of justify that when I went back as a professor saying, I'm not praying for the exam. Right. right. I'm giving it That's and right. I'm knowledge as opposed to and so uh, I got right with the Lord on that That's to right. get back to Rutgers, you know? No doubt, no doubt. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sherm. Our partners at Sherm, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at Sherm.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. You talk about ownership of assets. So much of the national discourse around equity focuses on fairness, and rightfully so. But boy, that equity equals ownership across the board in whatever game you're in to have skills that you own that are competitive in the marketplace, to actually own real estate, stock, or some other asset that appreciates over time. And yes, skills can appreciate over time as well. Talk yes. about that complementary dimension of equity. Fairness, absolutely, but also ownership. Well, I'm going I'm to quote you. They say flattery. I'm going to quote you. One time I heard you speaking, you said equity as in fairness and equity as in finance. I was like, yeah, yeah. So you, that's your word. That, right? that, so was, a, that was a softball. I was hoping you might recall that. So it was a setup. Self-referential treatment there. I got it. I got it. I heard it. And that probably was, I don't know, five or six yeah. years ago. But I always remembered it, that we really are working on both. And so the equity and fairness is getting a seat at the table you know, being able to make the case, you know, having access and relationships. The finance, I always tell people that my work is half narrative and half the numbers, mm. that I got to have the narrative and the words and the relationships and to be able to articulate the idea. 
But at its core, the numbers have to work as well. There's a financial proposition and there's a business case that is to be made. Now, a lot of the work I do now, in fact, most of it is around talking to impact investors, particularly philanthropically motivated impact investors. That I'm saying, look, I got to do community development work. I can't, you know, get a, you know, 12% preferred return and a 20% IRR. Uh, you know, I'm more on the line of, can I get you a 5%? You know, I have a great fund that we're excited about announcing uh, in the next month or so here, where the terms are a 5% preferred return and then a 50-50 sort of waterfall. And my point to those investors is the work that's required to strengthen the community, to hire local residents, to, you know, advise and support minority entrepreneurs who we want to be tenants in those buildings. All of those metrics, that whether you equate that to a 5% or a 10% additional financial return will show up in lower crime, higher educational outcome, better health outcomes, increased property values without displacement, you know, that type of stuff. So again, is narrative and his numbers as no well. That's, that's fairness and finance. No doubt. You know, uh, Lanier, one of the things that Stephen Johnson talks about in terms of innovators are people who get to the adjacent possible. And one of the things that I love about your work is that you are connecting dots in ways that are transforming the way we can think about real estate as a catalytic instrument to create that type of equity on both sides of the coin, right? Create more equitable opportunity and be able to create more equitable ownership uh, on the on the finance and wealth creation side. So let's now connect those dots in terms of how you were able to bring a set of fairly unique skills to bear to then think about what the what became ultimately the Chicago Trend Corporation, because that connecting of dots to get to that adjacent possible is really, I think, what's doing some of that transformative work right now. Yeah. So let me do when I, I quoted Jonathan, let me requote something you said, which I liked. It was, you know, Christopher, your your comment to me was this is a moment where we got to figure out how to do capitalism differently. Right. And so it's not that we need to, you know, not, you know, we we all benefit from being in a capitalistic system, but this is a moment where doing capitalism differently. I heard you say that once and I, I, it resonated with me. And that's what our work at Chicago Trend is. It's like, all right, look, we wanna see stronger communities. We know commercial corridors are first impression of neighborhoods. We read the stories about, you know, um, random acts of violence. And uh, uh, we read the stories about, you know, social determinants and health outcomes, lower vaccination rates in neighborhoods, you know, and, and one of the ways of doing capitalism differently is figuring out how to support entrepreneurship, is figuring out how to really get wealth creation at its, and ownership at the most local micro level. One of the things that I'm most excited about in our current work is, you know, we figured out a way to get people with even a thousand dollars to have an ownership stake in the neighborhood shopping center at the, that they pass by every day. These are properties that people go to for carry out pizza or the drugstore, uh, you know, the hair salon. They go by them and patronize them every day 
but they have no connection to the ownership. There's nobody of color from their community working on the site. There's nobody that's a you know, leasing agent or property manager. And so for us to now create ways where local people uh, have a connection, an investment connection, they know a person of color who's leasing the property or managing the property, that's, that's doing capitalism differently. And, um, and it's going to take time. We're, we're, you know, we're two years into the process, you know, before we'll know if we're right. But, you know, this thought of how do you strengthen communities at the most micro level and at grassroots and feel the impact and community pride of ownership. Uh, you can see some neighborhoods in Chicago where they're experiencing depopulation, right? Well, maybe if I had a little ownership stake and I had a voice and, you know, and some financial benefit from what's happening on the commercial area that I drive by or walk by often, maybe that'll help make the neighborhood better. That's our thesis. Lanier, I apologize in advance. I'm going to take you back to law school and test right. a hypo, a hypothesis. Yes. I heard you use words like investment connection, ownership interest. To me, that feels like a an ecosystem kind of approach. Okay. Within your model, operationally, really granular, what is that keystone connecting mechanism that might exist for the overall health of the ecosystem, facilitating partnerships, facilitating connections, attracting resources? Am I reading the model right or am I off base there? Yeah, and so I think you're reading the model right, and I, I don't think there's one silver bullet, right? Anybody doing anything positive in the community, anywhere, I try to know and see if we can get support and connect dots. Yep. So there's one of my development co colleagues that talks about it as, um, uh, I think he doesn't call it anchor uh, investment, a guy named Liam Walker. He says, look, you identify whether it's a church group or a university partner, or a, a business that's locating there. Uh, I'm like, look, if there's a, a community organizer, there's a great elected official, there's a property owner who you can see has pride of ownership, fundamentals of you know commercial property, visibility, access, parking. If there's any place of strength to work from and that you can galvanize the, the, the folks who are trying to make places better and trying to you know, both democratize wealth yep. creation as well and not concentrated, you know, maybe all of those are part of the ecosystem. And, you know, part of our work as developers and as economic developers is to catalyze, get them resources, connect the dots, make sure people know each other and that, you know, good work gets the support it needs. A colloquial example of, of that is there are no wrong doors. Wherever you enter, you'll get to where you need to be because we're that connected of a community. No, I like that. You know, we've alluded to this uh, in a lot of different ways, but to get to the heart of it, can you walk us through exactly the model that you are developing with Chicago Trend? And, and it would also be helpful, Lanier, if you could walk us back a couple steps about the first couple of investors, I know that, for example, you had MacArthur Foundation, Chicago Community Trust that sort of got behind you. 
and they saw something and you saw something in terms of how you could leverage commercial real estate that aligned with economic development priorities of the community that was able to really leverage the ecosystem that Jonathan was talking about. Yeah. And I'll talk about the work in really two phases briefly. I'll call it, you know, pre-pandemic and pre-George Floyd's murder and post, right? So pre-BC, you know, you know, the pre-period was the former uh, CEO at the MacArthur Foundation. Same way we had a relationship with. When I was a young entrepreneur, she sat on my board of directors, right? And she, she sort of opened an opportunity up with the co-founder of my company, a guy named Bob Weisbord, around, you know, commercial corridors are important to neighborhoods. It's your first impression of a neighborhood. And that so many community groups want, you know, good retail and good, you know, dry cleaners, a grocery store, you know, a coffee shop. And so the initial part of our work was trying to identify where retail would make a difference in neighborhoods, right? It wasn't about just this coffee shop. It was, will this strengthen the neighborhood? All of those other educational outcomes, crime reduction, as well as, you know, will it keep people of color committed and civically involved in neighborhoods? That was the initial work. So the first two years, we made loans to developers, 200000 to $2 million loans using capital provided by MacArthur Foundation, Fifth Third Bank, Calvert, Chicago Community Trust, and others, right? About when the pandemic happened, and then, you know, George Floyd murdered right after, there was civil unrest in the very neighborhoods we were working in. Hey, can I back and, you up for one quick sec, Lanier? Yes, yes, when yes, you talk yes. about you are making loans to developers, did you, you obviously had a set of criteria by which you were making those loans that were impact driven, right? So these were impact investments that you were making on behalf of the philanthropic community to try to move the needle around creating greater connectivity and strength within these local neighborhoods. Yes, thank you for that that uh, that clarification. Yes, it was, um, you know, we would use some uh, data and analytic tools. We did this big survey, you know, Bob Weisbord is a, a, a well-known economic development sort of, you know, oh, yeah. thought leader and quantitative sort of uh, a, a approach to it. And so we would try to identify what neighborhoods were on the cusp of change and where retail might make a difference. And then I, a lot of my work was centered on identifying local developers, getting them patient capital, adding additional, whether it was a retail connection, whether it was a connection to the city for land control, whether it was working on the pro forma, it was, you know, getting a project to viability and then ultimately getting the as early as possible patient capital in to either acquire the land, do retail or build out, help open a minority owned franchise in a community. It was that type of impact work. So thank you for that clarification. Then what, when the pandemic happened, we all, you know, we all were in the house saying, oh, the world's different. And so, and then the, the civil unrest following George Floyd's murder, you know, I kept thinking, man, the world's different. We're not going to just be able to continue to do this work in the way we've been doing it. And I remember one morning seeing this sign of someone standing out in front of a business saying, you know, don't loot this business, a Black-owned business. And it hit me like a ton of rock. I was like, well, who owns the shopping center? 
And then, you know, a couple of days later, there were all these discussions about wealth creation and we got to create close the racial wealth gap. And that's when the, the sort of thesis hit me that wealth is created by owning assets, assets that generate revenue and assets that appreciate over time. It became sort of my stump speech, right? It's like, it, it was like, a, it maybe has tax advantages, right? It was like, can we do that? And so we acquired a shopping center. And initially with a small syndicate of people, a local property management uh, manager, African-American, an African-American leasing, uh, leasing agent, even one of the African-American owned business owners. We said, hey, we're about to buy this center. We think it needs whatever, $200,000 of equity. You know, you can invest along with us on the same terms. Again, because we had this philanthropic capital, we did not have to be, I would say we're not a nonprofit, but we're not profit maximizers either, right? My, You're profit my optimizers. Optimize. My, my personal dream, like I've never wanted to, you know, only have the three seats in first class and everybody else be in, in you know, coach. I like to have a plane with maybe all first class, right? right. Or, or, you know, it, so, so the thought of you can invest on the same terms as we can, Sure, you know, there's some profit um, uh, sharing that, you know, in traditional capitalism, again, doing capitalism differently, say, if this is good, I want it all. Here, it's like, all right, it takes $200,000. You want to invest $50,000? We'll invest one fifty, dollars and we'll share on the same economics. We make some fees for managing the process, but we give people the same sort of equity share. We bought the first one. I sleep well at night because the property manager, leasing agent, and one of the key tenants also co-owners with me. It's not just me worried about it from an ownership state. And then when we went to Baltimore, we approached one of the local CDFI partners and there was some reluctance initially. Like, well, is buying a shopping center really economic development? And here's this guy from Chicago. Why should we use our local resources? Suppose this guy from Chicago. And we talked through the, the model. Long story short, it's the first time we used the crowdfunding platform. Uh, Chris, I know this is a, uh, a friend of, uh, of yours as well. Christopher, a friend of yours as well, uh, Eve Picker. Uh, Eve had this real estate crowdfunding platform. And we, in six weeks, we raised 49% of the equity required from 130 Black, local, and small impact investors. Some people at $1,000, some famous people, you know, Jonathan, your friends, and, you know, uh, celebrities, <laughs> of course. That's well, right. Or, you know, that's a, that's well, who Jonathan you know, runs with, man. That's, that's who Jonathan that's runs with. Yeah, you know he's got all the, you <laughs> exactly. know, you know he knows Beyonce. Jonathan yeah, yeah, knows yes, Beyonce. Yes, yes, you know, uh, so, uh, I've yeah. actually declined her call. <laughs> Thank you, but you know, so we have some celebrities as well who now have an ownership stake alongside of us in a property that we hope to revitalize. So this thought of not only in, on having an ownership stake and an owner's perspective. But then having people of color as tenants, as professional service providers, as role models, and this finally in this broader concept of ownership, I still have this vision. I haven't done it yet of creating a hat or a T-shirt that says hashtag what W O T. We own this. All right. And the we meaning bigger, not just you know Jonathan, Chris, and I, but my uncle Jonathan, or I went to prom mm -hmm. with Chris, or I used to be on the fraternity with Lanier, or you know, that's my cousin or my dad, that there's a bigger sense of pride of ownership in that we, that's not just about the person who wrote the $1,000 or the $10,000 check. Yeah. That's the pride that we're hoping to get to. What I love about uh, what you have mentioned in the past in terms of this model. So to be clear, you all go 
and are able to identify where there is a current and existing shopping center that potentially, and this is what I love about it, has been extractive historically, not owned by anybody in the community. The businesses that are in there could be Rena Center or other type of extractive businesses that are pulling money out of the community and flipping the model towards being a contributive asset in the community. It's owned by the local community that has business owners in there that have a stake in that shopping center. And all of a sudden it's going back actually to, uh, you really look at the emergence, like I live in Durham, North Carolina, Black Wall Street, right? Where you're able to keep the investment in the community and because of that recycled effect has amplified impact. I mean, I, that's one of the things I just really love about this model that I think has huge scaling potential. Yeah, two things I would add. So you're, you're, thank you for that. One is the clarification, is a, is a fine point uh, that we are still aiming to earn a profit, that this is wealth creation. So I often sort of even suggest to my community development partners, my economic development partners, my impact investors that, you know, while we might have check cashing, which is, you know, almost by definition extracted as tenants, we are by a center and we'll see them. We know they're paying rent and we'll know they have a lease term. So we don't go in there day one and say like check cashing, you know, you know, hit, hit the bricks, you know, you're out of here. We spent some time saying, all right, check cashing leasing is up in two years. Can we identify? I'm really excited about this possibility of we bought this center in Baltimore and we're having conversations, negotiations, trading a letter of intent. It's not a done deal. All it says is not a done deal with a black owned bank. So could you in two years sort of upgrade the tendency from check cashing to a black owned bank that really wants to you know, make loans, provide, you know, financial services to the community. That's progress. It's progress from the community standpoint. It's a better tenant. You know, it's a it's a rent paying tenant that will allow the shopping center to be profitable and to, you know, have be sustainable as an operation. So that point of we still are business people, right? We're hard, you know, we're making those decisions, but you're trying to do something in a, a way that, as you said, is contributive. Second point I will make is what we're finding is there's decent, good properties in some black in black communities that have just not been leased to their full potential. That there's a you know we sort of milk it. You know everybody you know I've never had a cash cow. I've always dreamed of what a cash cow might look like. We all want, but in some respects, the cash cow is we're putting nothing in and we're just taking everything out. We're not feeding the cow. We're not putting new grade, you know, we're not protecting him. We're not making sure the cow is healthy. We're just taking the milk out of it. And what I'm finding in some of these centers is there's been disinvestment. They haven't done the capital improvements. They haven't put on a new roof. They haven't, because the view is, you know what, let's just sort of, you know, um, maximize the economic opportunity. In some respects, that's a short-term nature. In some respect, that's a a disrespect to the economics that are in the community. That's these right. are densely populated communities with people that have incomes, with people that have aspirations. And the commercial property being, you know, not invested in is actually bringing down home values. It actually, you know, sort of back to broken windows theory is sort of the place that looks like 
Nobody cares about this right. place. So, uh, again, a lot of dreamy economic development, community development theory in this work. Uh, you know, again, we're early in and I'm hoping that it proves out. You know, my biggest dream is five years, 10 years from now, people will say he was right. They made some money. The communities are stronger. Crime is down. And the investors got a three or four or five X return on, on their capital. That's that's the theory of change we're hoping comes to fruition. Building on your theory of change. Right. You talked about Christopher's comment about doing capitalism differently. Maximization versus optimization. Among difficult things to do, pedal to the metal every day all the time is frankly the easiest thing to do. Instead of pursuing a 10 out of 10 on everything all the time, perhaps 9 out of 10 is optimal because it also catalyzes multiplied impacts that would, by volume, potentially improve the return to the company versus a 10 that doesn't trigger those multiplied impacts as well. So it feels like an, an, an optimization versus a pure maximization kind of approach. Secondly, the diversity of your capital stack. I'm particularly interested in the agility that diverse capital affords. You know, in the nonprofit sector, it's a lot of restricted capital, can only do one thing with one grant. And then in the, the kind of diversity of capital that you're talking about in your stack gives you ability to do all kinds of things that need to be done because your capital is not all restricted from a philanthropic source or even the philanthropic resources are investments versus grants. Yeah, and so I'm glad we have a few minutes just to talk about capital, right? Uh, because, you know, there have been so many big announcements, $60 billion of new capital for racial justice investing, social impact investing. I was at one company that said it was $3 billion of social impact capital on the sideline looking for opportunity. A lot of that capital, as you know, is place-based. You know, MacArthur likes Chicago, Gretzky likes Detroit, Cleveland Foundation like Cleveland, Columbus Foundation like Columbus. You know, is that... That so there's some place-based restrictions there, but I still am really hopeful that the impact capital, you have to be urgent but patient about it. It's, it's a whole process. It takes time. There's a dance, and I imagine that's the case with any type any type of capital. But I really am hoping that, you know, we're two years out from that that moment of pandemic. Long, you know, George Floyd just celebrated, you know, sort of second anniversary of you know or, or recognize the second anniversary of, 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 his, of his murder. I'm hoping that more capital, I've seen the announcements, Jonathan, quite honestly, man, I just haven't seen the capital really make it to black entrepreneurs oh, and black man. communities. I've seen it be allocated to big CDFI partners, but I haven't seen it make it up enough to the capital innovators and the local real estate developers. And so, you know, I, Hope you use the Moving the Needle podcast to continue to make, a, you know, a clarion call to impact investors, to philanthropically motivated individuals, to, to actually get the capital to community and into structures to get the change that we want to see happen, right? We need, we need that. This is clearly the time for action, you know, and, uh, and we cannot afford to miss it. And that's one of the things that we continue to have an urgent and important conversation with all of our respective guests. 
before we let you go, Lanier, you know, we got to ask a couple of personal questions. We love the idea of uh, what inspires and influences change makers out there. So what are the great things that you're listening to these days? What are some of the things that you're reading and you would love to be able to share with others? So I, you know, on the fun side, I, I, mean, I was joking with Jonathan at the top of our, of our hour here. I love song lyrics. If I could have a fantasy career, I'd be a songwriter, right? So uh, I, uh, you know, I love blues songs, you know, uh, and, you know, I remember lyrics. And in fact, every Saturday, I find a good song lyric and I post it on Facebook as like sort of an homage to my wife, right? So it's, you know, from, you know, your kisses on my list of the best things in life to, you know, blues lyrics that, you know, no one loves me but my mama. And she may be jiving too. Right? I don't know if you heard. I love that. That's how I felt sometimes as an entrepreneur, right? You know, no one loves me, and she may be. You know, so I love blues lyrics. In terms of seriously, uh, what we're what I'm reading, I read this great book. It, in fact, it's not economic development by uh, uh, Steve Schwartzman, uh, the founder of uh, 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 Blackstone, Blackstone Blackrock. I'm forgetting it's Blackstone, and he talked about his business as financial services advisory services and assets that they own. And I remember thinking like, that's a good model for my little social enterprise, right? So we do advisory services. We really have pivoted. We've got some great advisory services clients, including some of the big foundation, the Prisca Trauber Foundation, Chicago Community Trust and others. Uh, we have our financial services stuff, which is still trying to get in structured deals to get capital to minority entrepreneurs. And then this asset uh, ownership. So, you know, I took something right off the shelf from, uh, you know, uh, uh, industry tycon, uh, uh, icon and, 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 and Titan and, and really made it applicable to the social enterprise that, that, that I run. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I've been reading a lot of the, you know, sort of someone just told me recently and I st- I'm probably halfway through it, not done, is an old book, you know, Rules for Radicals, uh, mm. Saul, Saul Linsky, mm. right? Because some of this work is about advocacy and and, and passion. So I'm about halfway through that. You know, I grew up reading, you know, self-help books. My dad was, you know, a believer in positive mental attitude. And, you know, so all of that stuff is part of my, uh, is part of my reading repertoire. On a lighter note, as we wrap up, I think we're about the same age. Give me your top artists from the seventies, particularly soul, your top yeah. blues artists and your top Early '80s rap artists. Oh, One, so two, early three. '80s. Look, I was an LL Cool J there fan. There you go. Okay. So, uh, I know all the lyrics. I won't. <laughs> I won't start rapping on the show. Blues, Bobby Blue Bland. Yeah. They called him the Frank Sinatra of the blues. That's I right. really love Bobby Blue Bland and Visitors Museum uh, and his uh, exhibit in uh, in Memphis. Uh, and then you know '70s funk band. Look. I won a dance contest dancing to Flashlight by Parliament pa- pa- There you go. Little uh, you don't want to see me do the robot yeah, anymore, but I did. Uh, so, you know, I'm right there with you, man. All right. All right. This has been great. Christopher? Yeah, I think uh, there's somewhere out there a We Own This song <laughs> that's got to come out. It's got a little bit of that Funkadelic background yeah, beat. It. Man, let's let's it. get that going. You get you get that written. We'll be the uh, the backup on that. Absolutely. We're gonna get that we'll be your show. hype men. Your hype men. Yeah, we'll be a hype men. Yes. That's good stuff. Man, Lanier, this has been great. Really appreciate your time with us today. I know you've got a lot of exciting things coming down the pike in terms of big announcements. I know that there's a number of things in the pipeline. 
Love to come back and revisit some of those things with you. In the meantime, I think people can pay attention to where you're going with chicagotrend.com. Go to Lanier Richardson at, uh, at LinkedIn with Chicago Trend Corporation. Man, it's been great to have this conversation with you, Lanier. You're doing some amazing work. And I think hopefully setting the model and the bar about where we need to go to reimagine where capitalism is going. So appreciate it, man. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for having me. My pleasure. That was Lanier Richardson, co-founder and CEO of Chicago Trend, which you can learn more about at chicagotrend.com. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved. Find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews and cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle moving shit. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities. Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. 
we had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for Yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.